Would you take your Bible with me and turn to John chapter 11 this morning? John chapter 11. We're going to read the first 16 verses in John chapter 11. Um, If you don't have a a Bible, there's still several on the table back there. Um, Go ahead and pick one up uh, and and have these words in front of you. Um, Otherwise, uh, the the phone app is always an option as well. and, uh, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, if you're here this morning worshiping here with us and you don't have a Bible, there are a handful under the, um, under the giving box back in the back. Go ahead and look under there. Pick one of those up. That's our gift to you this, this morning. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 16. Now. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This text in John chapter 11 is a, represents a bit of a transition for us in the gospel. So up until this point, we've been learning about Jesus, learning who he is. He's kind of been traveling around, um, traveling around the countryside between Galilee and Jerusalem. And there's been this movement in Jesus's, Jesus's ministry here on earth. But now, as we get to John chapter 11, this represents a turning point. And even though there's 21 chapters in John, and this is the 11th chapter, the rest of the gospel is geared towards getting us to the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Christ. When we consider this text this morning, again, this is a bit of a transition for us, um, but when we consider this text this morning, my, my goal here is I want you to see that, we, that Jesus is strong. That Jesus is strong. I think sometimes we struggle in our lives when there are many things that are swirling around us to trust Jesus. We struggle 
with that. Um, and sometimes that's simply because we, uh, because, we don't, uh, because we don't see the situation clearly. But sometimes the reason we struggle to trust Jesus in any one of our, any one of our given circumstances is because we genuinely, in our heart of hearts, don't believe that he's strong enough to handle it. That if we reflect inside as we approach the things of the day-to-day stuff of life, we don't actually think that Jesus is strong enough to handle it. And so what we wind up doing is mustering things in our own strength that always wind up coming up short. But Jesus is strong. And so if I want you to walk away with one thing this morning, it's to see the strength of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, the one who was bringing all of what had accumulated behind him to a conclusion. That conclusion we'll celebrate on Good Friday and again on Easter Sunday next week. So chapter 11 then represents for us, if you're thinking about John's gospel in sort of this uh, outline form, um, this is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the end, and it's a transition into the week that contains Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So today, again, is Palm Sunday. Um, We remember Jesus coming into Jerusalem triumphantly. We call it the triumphant entry just days before his crucifixion. That account actually comes in chapter 12 of John's gospel, but we're not skipping ahead. Um, so, uh, what, but, but what we should do is take this chapter 11 and chapter 12 together as this transition unit, moving us towards um, Jesus' final, final week here on earth. At the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus is going to start talking about how he's going to eliminate the final enemy. So I want you to feel the weight of this a little bit as we walk into, because this is a little bit of setup that you need to have going into John chapter 11. As we walk into Holy Week, and again, this is the perfect time to be talking about this text, because today is the beginning of Holy Week. Again, Jesus entering Jerusalem today on Palm Sunday. Jesus giving his final teaching throughout the weekdays. Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples and instituting the Lord's Supper. Jesus is then betrayal, his trial leading to his false accusation. Jesus' journey to Calvary. And then his crucifixion and his death and his burial. All of that happens within a one-week set of time beginning today. And then next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, is the beginning of the following week and a stake in the ground where where, uh, everything is different. Everything changes. Resurrection Sunday marks the inauguration of new creation. Um, And that will be fully realized when Jesus, Jesus comes back and returns. Jesus, resurrected from the dead, the firstborn among many sons, going before us, giving us the assurance of hope of new life and the certainty of new creation. That's what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. So again, I want you to see in this passage in particular, the strength that Jesus puts on display. But right here, Jesus is giving us a glimpse into death's undoing. Jesus is giving us a glimpse into, or a foreshadowing, into death's death. Think about your Christmas lights. We're switching holidays here, but think about your Christmas lights. 
it's the Friday after Thanksgiving. The weather is reasonable. You pull out the box with Christmas lights in it. But before you put them up, you have to untangle them. Now, maybe you're one of those people who's super organized and buys those organizer things and those. But maybe you're not, because when you took them down last February, <laughs> um, it was minus 10, and to avoid frostbite, you just tossed them into the, the tub or the tote or the box, and then somehow, by some entropic force of evil, they became super tangled. And then three, maybe four hours later, you're ready to put them on the house. Think about your Christmas lights, and if that's not your experience, then just indulge me. But like, if you're thinking about that, that's how I want you to think about death. That's how I want you to think about the world to which Jesus came. This tangled mess of things that that everyone was caught up in. We're all caught up in death in this way. And the sin that entered the world all the way back in Genesis 3 in your Bible, that third chapter in the Bible, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God told them not to eat of, that sin introduced this tangled mess that we're all born into. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1.15, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight. And as soul-sucking as untangling your Christmas lights might feel like, Untangling the mess of death is like those Christmas lights are actually barbed wire. And that barbed wire is in a room that is pitch black. There's no light at all. And not only do you have to untangle this barbed wire in this pitch black room, but you have to untangle these Christmas light amount of barbed wire in a pitch black room for every person who has ever lived. There's no hope for you to be able to do that. There's no hope for you to be able to straighten that all out. So who can make what is crooked straight? Jesus can. That is the very work that he is initiating here in John chapter 11. This infinitely knotted mess of infinite barbed wire perfectly straightened out. And not only that, but he takes that string of cold steel barbed wire and he turns it into a vine full of life, bringing fruit that will bear witness to his work for all of eternity. So, What I want to do here is consider what actually happens in this passage. That work of making straight what is crooked that Jesus is initiating here. I want to think about just two things that come out of this text this morning. And there are two threats made. Two threats in this text. The first is the threat against Jesus' life. We've kind of seen a lot of this so far in John's Gospel. The threat against Jesus. Jesus' life, but then there's a new threat made. It's the threat that Jesus makes against death. So, we're going to take both of those in turn this morning. So, firstly, the threat against Jesus. You know this. Last week, we talked about this at the end of John chapter 10. 
And the disciples even reference it here um, in verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? So they know very clearly that Jesus is, uh, there's a threat on Jesus' life. And the Jews were hell-bent on stoning Jesus for blasphemy. Jesus escaped their hands, we're told, in 1039. It says again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And remember, if you were thinking with us about this passage last week, this is a mercy that Jesus extends to these people who want to kill him. This is an act of mercy. Jesus is giving the ones who would put him to death more time to see Jesus for who he truly is and to repent of their sin and believe. But the point is this. We're uh, familiar with this escalating tension that's happening throughout John's gospel. There's been confusion and then there's been division and now there's actually attempts to murder him. And we learn that Jesus, we learn at the beginning of this passage that Jesus is actually avoiding Jerusalem and the area around it, which is Judea. If you look, look at a map um, of Palestine, you see Judea um, and Jerusalem in the middle of that, and it's sort of at the southern part of the uh, eastern part of the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean Sea. And Jesus is actually on the eastern side of the Jordan, eastern side of the Jordan River. Um, Jerusalem is on the west side of the Jordan River. And from the underneath of this immediate threat of his life, we're told in verse 42 of chapter 10 that many believed in him. So he went out into the wilderness. He went to the east side of the Jordan River. He's ministering to people there and many believe in that place. But now, now, Jesus, this is the turning point. This is the transition. Jesus is about to courageously let himself be drawn back into Jerusalem where that threat against his life is most prevalent. Where the threat against Jesus' life is most prevalent, Jesus is about to courageously let himself be drawn back in. He's going to walk. He's willingly walking into the belly of the beast. This isn't a trick. He's not being manipulated. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. Dark clouds are swirling and all this tension that we've felt so far in John's gospel is about to come to a head. Jesus hasn't been out on the east side of the Jordan River running from his problems. He's not Simba, Hakuna Matataing it out in the, in, the, in the wilderness. Jesus knows exactly, Jesus is God. Jesus, stand, he, he created time. He knows the perfect timing of this event that's about to transpire and take place. The time is now. People, people often describe themselves, this is an upper Midwest thing, we're good at this. We describe ourselves as conflict-averse. We're saying, I'm, I'm conflict-averse. Sometimes conflict can be avoided, but sometimes it's inevitable. One of the things that Rebecca and I benefited, we talk about this regularly, one of the things that we benefited most from in our premarital counseling was an understanding that conflict in marriage doesn't always have to result or go badly. Or be a bad thing. In marriage, what we do is sometimes we view our spouse as the enemy. We say, I'm right, you're wrong. When our conflict is allowed to remain in this sort of me against you mode, 
marital conflict can in fact be destructive. But what we have to continually remember in our marriages is that for Rebecca and I, we're one flesh joined together by, by God. And we should not allow for simple preferences, opinions, other people, Satan himself, to start driving wedges in between us. And when Rebecca and I have conflict, we try to remember that we're not enemies of one another. That, we're, that she's not the enemy. I'm, I'm not the enemy. Do we do this well? Not usually. Well, at least I don't. I don't, I don't typically do this well, but here's the rub. The enemy isn't my spouse. Rather, it's my sinful desires that need to be put to death. I want to illustrate this for you in just a second. But Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.11. Now, remember, the apostle Peter is here present for all of these things. He's hearing everything that Jesus is saying. He says this. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So in this example, our spouse isn't our enemy. And when we have conflict with our spouse, and when emotional emotions cool down a little bit, we can trace this back to the source of the conflict. And we trace it typically back to ourselves. Where did I fail to abstain from the passions of my flesh in this instance? Let me tell you where I typically indulge. Here's where, the, so when Rebecca and I got married, she, she was the social one and I was the one who was quiet. And somehow in our years of marriage, um, that's changed. So like, she's the one who's like, hey, I just need a break. And I'm like, and I'm the one who won't shut up or wants to be with people, which is kind of a funny dynamic. I don't know how often that happens, but it's happened for us. And so Rebecca, here's what will happen. So Rebecca will talk to me about her day. And um, because I'm this now, I guess, um, what I will wind up doing is punctuating every sentence with like my opinion or some like interjection. That's super annoying when people do that. And I, I do it all of the time. That's not helpful at all. Rebecca doesn't need to hear my thoughts. She just needs, needs to listen. She's just recounting the events of her day, not asking for me to, to give a running commentary on this conversation. Um, I was reminded, I don't know if it was in the Bible reading plan a few weeks ago or something, but in Proverbs 18.6, Solomon writes, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. And so my sinful flesh says, you have something worthwhile to add to this conversation. Um, even when I don't, that's pride. That's thinking far too highly of myself. And that's indulging the passion of my flesh, which wages war against my soul. And then I drag my wife into it and my lips invite this conflict. Here's the point. Here's the point of all of this. It takes a lot less self-control to indulge than abstain. But I need to wage war against that which seeks to kill me. My sinful desires that come out of the form of pride or come out in the form of prideful speech. So when Rebecca says, "Would you please just listen?" My flesh leads me to believe that that uh, that she needs to hear what I have to say, which leads me to see her as the enemy, and then we sort of have this conflict. But when I realize that the enemy here is actually my sinful flesh, and that I need to be delivered from this sinful flesh, 
and that I am equipped with God's word and the Holy Spirit to fight against my sinful flesh, the conflict is rightly engaged, not with my wife, but with the sinful desire. So, bring this all back to where we are in John chapter 11, thinking about conflict. Jesus was not conflict averse. Jesus was not conflict adverse, but we need to know this very clearly when we have this conversation. That Jesus knew what his mission was. And when the time came, he willingly, of his own volition, he willingly made his way towards this inevitable conflict. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't misidentify the enemy. When, when you have marital conflict and you're tempted to identify your spouse as the enemy, don't look inside before you look outside. Jesus didn't misidentify the enemy here. Jesus didn't necessarily provoke the murderous intent in the Jews who wanted him dead. That intent was already in them. It's in all of us. Again, everyone save Jesus himself was born into this tangled mess of sin. And you say, I don't want to kill people. Well, sure, of course. But have you ever been angry at someone for stealing your happiness or fulfillment or making your life harder? Probably this morning. Have you ever, for a second, allowed anger to swell in your heart when you came home to a sink full of dishes or spaghetti sauce all over the break room microwave or someone driving slow? Jesus in Matthew 6, 21 and 22 says, you have heard it said that, it, uh, that uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. This very sin is present in our flesh. Even if we haven't plotted a murder recently. But even those, and even though the Jews intended to murder Jesus, he knew they weren't the enemy at which his current mission was aimed. The Jews who picked up the stones in John chapter 10 were not the enemy to which his current mission was aimed. They weren't victims. They were totally responsible for their, their sinful flesh that said, pick up the stones and put this guy to death because he's calling into question everything that we've ever believed. But Jesus came the first time to offer salvation from sin that leads to death. Now, when Jesus, on a future date, when Jesus comes again, he will deal with those who refuse to repent and believe. But this mission that Jesus is on that's coming to a head right now is to offer salvation by defeating sin and death. So Jesus knew that there was an inevitable conflict and that inevitable conflict wasn't the people with the people who were seeking to murder him, but with sin and death. So Jesus would pay for the sins of, every, of even those who would yell, crucify him. And it is our sin that we are totally responsible for that he pays for. And we are freed from that sin when we repent of it and trust Jesus as the only one who can remove it from us. Conflict with the Jews in John's gospel would happen, yes. 
But the free gift of salvation is offered to everyone who repents and believes. That includes the ones who tried to kill him in John chapter 10 and would succeed in killing him later in the gospel. That includes you and me whose sin put him on the cross. The free gift of salvation is offered to everyone who repents and believes. So this is the first threat here. The threat against Jesus' life. And Jesus was ready to courageously head back into the very place where this threat of his life, against his life was most potent. Full well knowing the inevitability of the conflict with sin and death that stood before him. The threat against Jesus' life was real. But here's, here's where I want you to see the strength of Jesus on display. First, in that courage that he has to go back into, willingly go back into this scenario, this situation. But then, this is where it gets good. Um, Jesus makes his own threat against death. This is, this, is, this is hardcore. Okay, so when we see that there's an open threat against Jesus, Jesus is about to escalate things and he's going to put death on notice. Um, I feel like we should all be freaking out about this because Jesus' death, we're talking about death. We're not talking about uh, the Green Bay Packers. We're talking about death. We're talking about the thing that did not fail to claim anyone that always seemed to get the win, that was undefeated up until this point. But Jesus, what he does here is he names his enemy. Like, his, like a heavyweight boxer n- names his opponent. Forgive me for this. I'm feeling my age. Young people sometimes say or consider certain behavior to be a big flex. Sorry for, sorry for saying it like that. But it just means that you're like showing off, like you're a showboat. You take a photo with your new car, the high school football championship trophy, that's a big flex. Jesus is eyeing death from across the room. He's getting ready to flex on death. He's about to square up on death. We've kind of lost this vision of Jesus a little bit. Jesus is gentle, yes. He's lowly in heart, yes. He says both of those things about himself. But you can, you can, you can have your dew on the roses. Jesus is about to snatch the life right out of death. Man, I think this is especially important for us. You... You may be tempted to think that Jesus is effeminate. Jesus is loving, he's kind, he's merciful, he's patient, he's gentle. But that doesn't mean that right here, Jesus turns the corner and is getting ready to rip the throat out of death. Jesus identified the enemy and is ready to conclude its reign in the most humiliating way possible. Who doesn't like a blowout victory against your rival? This is what Jesus is about to do. If you're thinking to yourself, like, what is the pastor talking about right now? That's okay. Let's look at just what Jesus says here, and and hopefully I can prove it to you. 
Jesus calls out death four times in this passage. First call out. I want to show you these four things that he says. Because when I read the text, you might be tempted just to like move on beyond them. But they should be like, what? What did he just say? That isn't, okay. So first call out. Jesus is calling out death. And he does it four times in this passage. First thing. We learn Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, is sick. Jesus is their friend. And so Mary and Martha told Jesus about Lazarus' sickness. They send across the Jordan River a messenger. He brings the message. Jesus learns about it. And here's the first instance. Look at verse 4. He says, this illness does not lead to death. That's what he says. Now, if we're reading the rest of the text, we know that Lazarus dies. So is Jesus wrong? The answer is no. Jesus isn't wrong. Jesus is God. He knows everything. He knows exactly what's going to transpire. So what Jesus is doing here, Jesus is saying death is weak. Death doesn't, this, it's, not going to, it's not going to lead to death. De- death doesn't, do, what Jesus is doing, okay, so imagine, so um, two boxers, it's weigh-in day, right? They're standing on the scale. And you've seen this before, if you've if any fighting, like if you've watched it. They're just like, you've seen the way in, and they kind of get into a little scuffle beforehand, right? So what Jesus is doing, de- Jesus stepped up on the scale, got the way, like, then they did the wingspan and all that, and then, and then death gets up on the scale, and Jesus just pops him real quick with a left, right in the jaw. And that, that's intentional. That's what Jesus is doing here because what he wants death to think, he wants death to go home and say, tomorrow's the fight. And how hard is Jesus' haymaker going to land? And maybe he stays awake like another 15 minutes thinking about that. Jesus is playing like a mental game. This illness doesn't lead to death. Okay, second thing. Second call out. It's a silent one. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed too. Hold up. When he learned Lazarus was ill, he immediately, no, it says he waited two days longer in the place where he was. No need to rush things. Again, this is a mental game. When will Jesus show up? You better watch your back, death. He's coming. Third, third call out. It comes when the disciples are confused. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'll go and awaken him. Oh, okay, so, and then they say, Well, if he's just asleep, in verse 12, Well, if he's just fallen asleep, he'll recover. We shouldn't go back there because there's a threat against your life. So if, it's just, if he's just sleeping, let's just call it good. We'll just stay here. But Jesus is saying, after you see what's going to happen, after I raise Lazarus from the dead, you're going to know that what you thought was death was just a nap. Jesus is saying death is weak. Death is like a nap. Jesus is life, and death can't stand in the presence of life. Fourth call out, last one here. Since the disciples don't understand, Jesus then says it plainly. They say, if he's fallen asleep, he'll wake up. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. 
Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And the call out here is at the beginning of verse 15. And he says, And for your sake I am glad that I was not there. For your sake I am glad. Now, when a friend, someone who's your friend, who is relatively young, gets sick and die, this is not the type of language that we choose to use. You don't say, um, yeah, I was glad that that happened. That's not, that, that's not what's happened. So this should raise an alarm. What Jesus is doing, and what Jesus is going to show in a few verses when he raises Lazarus, is that he has death's number. What Jesus is going to do, he's calling death out because because what he's going to do is he's going to use Lazarus's death to bring about belief in his disciples. He's going to manipulate this circumstance in such a way that, that accomplishes his purposes. Death has sat on his throne for a few millennia, and Jesus is going to reduce death to his simple means to establish faith in 12 uneducated ordinary men and subsequently in us. Death is becoming Jesus' pawn. And those who came before Jesus, death succeeded in taking. Jesus would now make death question it all. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul jumps in on this action. He starts, he's, he, on the other side of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, on the other side of Jesus defeating death with his death, um, Paul jumps in and says, yeah, look, you're, you're beaten. So what he's, in 1 Corinthians 4, 15, 54, and 55, he's quoting from Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13. Paul writing on the other side of Jesus' death blow, he says, Jesus, or he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, that's not exactly like taunting language that we use. It's like, sort of like, you know, I bite my thumb at you in Shakespeare or something like that. But, but this is what it is. This is the, this is, Paul saying, you got nothing. You got nothing. You got nothing left. The strong man came into your house and stole everything. Paul knew all who trusted Jesus. We can join in mocking death. Death is an old fool who once ruled as a tyrant. And Jesus stripped him of that power and publicly shamed him. And we can too. Jesus is on the throne. This may seem a little weird to you, but this is what's going on here. Around the table this afternoon, when you sit down and eat lunch with your friends and family members, you can slap each other on the back and say, remember death? How pitiful his reign was in light of the current King Jesus who's reigning right now. He was a sad tyrant who lies in the grave with no breath in his lungs. That's what we're being told at the beginning of John chapter 11. Jesus is ready to take the heavyweight belt. He's putting death on notice. So in conclusion, just four things quickly I want you to take away from this passage. The The first is this. If this has felt weird to you, it's because sometimes I think we approach the Bible just assuming to see this meek and mild portrait of Jesus, not someone who's ready to call out and just stomp his enemy. But in conclusion, the first thing I want you to do is recognize the strength of Jesus and to take courage. 
When the time came, Jesus courageously and faithfully moved towards the fulfillment of his mission. His mission was to pay for the sins of the world and to disarm death through his death on the cross and to assure eternal life for everyone who believes in him through his own resurrection, pointing forward to our, our resurrection on the last day. So our, our mission, our mission, we have a mission as well. Our mission is to take the truth to the world, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. So Jesus both sets the example in faithfulness and courage to fulfill his mission and then equips and empowers us for faithfulness and courage to fulfill ours. His word and his spirit given to us to carry out the mission. Consider also uh, verse 16. This is Thomas's faithless statement in verse 16. He says, this guy's always getting the short end of it. But So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You know, it's a face that feels like a courageous statement, but Thomas is thinking this is the end. This is, this is it. We're done. Like, let's go with him and we'll die. But our courage must stand in contrast to Thomas's. Thomas's courage did not extend beyond what he saw. He didn't see Jesus as strong enough to disarm death. Our, our courage in faith knows that when we lose our life, we find it. We follow Jesus into his death, knowing that it is truly life. The second thing that I want you to see here is know that, the con- that conflict in this world is, in fact, inevitable. Be prepared for it, therefore. Know the truth, God's truth, by relentlessly reading, studying your Bible. Live like Jesus did, calling others to repentance and faith. Loving like Jesus loved, calling others to repentance and faith. Don't back down from this conflict, but make sure that you're identifying the enemy properly. We sometimes do a very bad job of this. Let me say, look inward. Before we look outward, wage war against your sinful desires. Death is a defeated enemy. In Christ, we can live with great courage, with a full assurance that that is true. Third thing, understand the character of Jesus. Again, if this is a portrait of Jesus that seems super foreign to you, then I would encourage you to understand the character of Jesus. Jesus knew his time had come, and he was ready for the fight. He didn't shy away from it. And I want to ask you, does that portrait of Jesus match your understanding? The strength on display here in Jesus Christ is staggering. It's staggering. We're supposed, we, we love stories like this. I mentioned this earlier. We love a blowout victory against the rival. We love superheroes who who have swagger and who take on the bad guys without hesitation. You know about stories and quests for immortality, finding the fountain of youth, slipping under death's radar. Jesus does it all. Let me encourage you. Jesus is your captain. You know the, you know the kind of leaders you want to follow. Not ones who are spineless and weak, but faithful, courageous leaders 
who are worth following. Following Jesus sometimes just becomes something we say. It's just like, oh, okay, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. But we follow Jesus because he's worth following. Because he's strong. Because he doesn't make mistakes. Because his direction and his word is always true. You see, Jesus is worth following. Faithful, courageous, conquering. If we say we're Christ's followers, we need to understand his whole character. Final thing, final takeaway. Marvel at the love of Christ. Now don't check out because I said final thing. Marvel at the love of Christ. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus waited two days longer than Lazarus was ill. Why? The text says it's because he loved. Because he loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Yes, by waiting two days, Jesus was calling out death. He was putting death on notice. But he put death on notice for the reason that he loved his friends. And because he wanted his disciples to believe. Jesus loves his own. He loves us. He loves you. He loves you so much that he will not let us continue to live in fear of death. He taunts death because he wants us to know that he is infinitely stronger. He wants us to know that the heavyweight belt is his. He wants us to know that when he says it is finished, it's because death is defeated. And when his the blood ran back through his veins on Easter morning. Rigor mortis was setting in on death. Jesus loves you and he wants you to know this. He's stronger than everything. Including the very thing that no one before him could overcome. He loves you in a way that no one else can and no one else ever will. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your parents, not anyone. None of those people could stop death for you. But Jesus does. And Jesus, through his death, put death to death. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love that is on display in Jesus Christ who went to the greatest lengths to bring us home to him. God, we rejoice in the reality that not even death would stop Jesus from from loving us. That he calls us to himself even now in these moments. God, we thank you for your strength on display in Jesus Christ, that there is not one thing in all of creation that is able to disrupt your plans. God, we praise you that death is no longer reigning, that its tyrannical rule has ended, and that Jesus Christ now is on the throne. God, we praise you for these things this morning. God, may we now compelled to follow Jesus more closely. 
God, would we see and savor him as the one who can set out and do everything that he intends. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things this morning. Amen.